On uh, Wednesday, I was at the base of Long's Peak in a pair of shorts in knee-deep snow with 18-degree winds. Now, when we started, it was 71 degrees at the base of that thing. And then we fly in uh, on Thursday, and it's like 89, 91 degrees here. Man, it's amazing transitions, what can happen in 24 hours. Uh, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 7 through 11. Now, did you know that anxiety levels have skyrocketed in the past 20 years across the board? Uh, in fact, in 2011, Slate.com reported that the average American high school kid today has the same level of anxiety as the average psychiatric patient in the early 1950s. Why? Well, everyone has their reasons, from the professionals to the armchair quarterbacks. Uh, and some of the reasons are these, low self-esteem, technology, workaholic parents, uh, narcissism, which is an increased sense of self-absorption, religious decline, modern's life, modern life's excessive comforts, and many other things. Everyone has their reasons about anxiety's rise, but no one disagrees that it's happening. Everyone knows that anxiety is on the rise across the board, not just in high school kids, but in 20-somethings, 30-somethings. What's shocking is that the anxiety levels are actually being pushed down to younger and younger ages. That's the shocking rise of the statistics. You know, we used to call the midlife crisis is when anxiety was at its peak. 40s, 50s. It's now gone past the 30s, past the 20s, and is into the teens. The number one way that we deal with anxiety today is to self-medicate, right? Some of the ways we do that is we go to the next drink, we go to the next hit, the next high, the next pharmaceutical. Another way we self-medicate is with achievement, the next long hour, the next thing to do, the next thing to become, the next fixer-upper. Or we do this with others. We self-medicate with others. We have the next romance and the next sexual partner and the next party and the next adoration and the next appreciation and the next uh, attention or approval of someone. Or we go with stuff, the next paycheck, the next big purchase, the next vacation, the next evening of entertainment. And then even some of us self-medicate with being over-spiritualizing everything. The next smile the next spiritual technique, the next spiritual discipline. One author calls anxiety emotional quicksand. Do you know what's incredible about this passage that we're going to look at? Jesus assumes that everyone in this room has high levels of anxiety. And that's why when he gets now to the end, he's wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount. He wants to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount to address all of us in this room and our high levels of anxiety. Please stand for the hearing of God's Word. Yes, we're going to read 7 through 11. 7 through 11. Forget 12. A reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Uh, the word of the Lord. Uh, I cannot believe I just said to forget the golden rule. Did you see that, verse 12? <laughs> Please be seated. Then you better come up here and pray, brother. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that what we're about to look at is absolutely true, and it's more true than the chair we're sitting on right now. Uh, our problem is experiencing what's true. So, Lord, we beg you to come, to send forth your Spirit, to open our eyes, to work in our hearts, and to do so, Lord, in a way that actually puts us back together again. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, y'all, so Jesus is wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, the great Sermon on the Mount. He's the better Moses on a better mountain, delivering a better word, a word that's comprehensive, a word that's final, a word that's fulfilled, a word that has all of its final meaning and centering of its meaning in Jesus, right? So when you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, how should we feel? I mean, what should the sermon do to us? What should you be thinking right now? What should you do right now? What does Jesus design the Sermon on the Mount to do to you and me? How does he want it to impact us? What does he, when he says, let there be light and light happens, when he preaches the Sermon on the Mount and it goes out, what's it meant to do? What's it meant to accomplish? Work in your life. Well, I'll tell you what some folks think it should do. Some folks think it should inspire you to be a, a better person, a better human being, to become better, to turn over a new leaf, to look in the mirror, the man in the mirror, right? Let change begin with me, start chanting. Make the world a better place is what many think this should do. And it starts with you. And it starts with me and it starts with the church. Others of us think it should repulse us. That it's religious oppression. For instance, I mean, take the whole anger, jerk, enemy angle that we've looked at over these past couple of weeks. See, that's designed to make you a sheeple. It's designed to make you passive, controllable, for authoritarian, oppressive, organized religion to control you. I mean, look at the whole sexual angle that he talked about. I mean, that's repressive. It's cruel. It's abusive. It's, if you follow that, if you do what Jesus is saying about sexuality, you'll decrease your quality of life, we're told. And not only that, you'll increase your mental illness. Your guilt will skyrocket. Your anxiety will skyrocket. So what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say the Sermon on the Mount should do to you and me? You know what he says? 
This is what he says. Verse 7. It should cause you to ask. And it will be given to you. It should cause you to seek. And you will find. And it should cause us to knock. And the door will be open. Jesus designed the Sermon on the Mount to make you and me beg for grace. To beg for grace. You know what historically the church has said about this passage? You know what they title it? The beggar's logic. Isn't that great? The beggar's logic. Matthew Henry is a famous Bible expositor. You know what he said about this passage? He says, those that would be rich in grace must betake themselves to the poor trade of begging and they shall find it a thriving trade. I don't want you to get caught up on all the ask, knock, seek stuff, the three imperatives that are there. Like there's these three aspects of doctrines of prayer, three kinds of prayer out there, and you need to get busy praying because the emphasis here is not on our exertion in prayer. The emphasis is on the kind of God that's in this passage. The God is the kind of God that loves to give grace, so ask Him. That's the emphasis. The emphasis isn't to figure out how to knock and figure out how to seek and figure out how to ask and have all these three different aspects of this doctrine of exertion and prayer. The emphasis actually is not on prayer. The emphasis is this is the kind of God he is. And if you get the kind of God he is, you'll beg him for grace. But that's our problem, isn't it? We don't beg Him for grace. We don't ask Him for grace. We'd rather be anxious. So when Cheryl, when Cheryl comes to the Sermon on the Mount and she sees Jesus' exposition of the perfect life, I mean, Jesus is expositing, this is what a human being looks like. And she comes to this, this is what a human being looks like. And she sees the inner qualities or the character of a a real human being that's filled with joy and worship and thankfulness and awe and wonder and contentment and freedom and flourishing. There's a sense of rest and reliance and rejoicing that goes on in the inner person. And then she sees, and she sees the the perfect relational life. A life of love and generosity and that's free from anger and adultery and lust and payback. That's free from the idols of respect and stuff and control and money. And she sees all this, and she's, she's caught up in all this. She reads this, and she says, I've got to try harder. I want that, and I've got to be that. And I'm going to become that. And sure, I'll ask God to help me. But the bottom line is, I've got to try harder. She reads and she tries harder. She doesn't beg for grace. She deals with the impossible life on her own. She'd rather be anxious. Jake, he carries around all his stress, all his disappointments, the daily ones, the routine ones, and then the big ones. His failures, his shame, his sleeplessness, 
his obsessive thinking throughout the day, the arguments he has with himself, the arguments he has with other people with himself, and he always wins those. But he doesn't beg for grace. He deals with the brokenness of life on his own. He'd rather be anxious. Sue, you know what Sue believes? Sue believes that reason and science and particularly technology will open doors to ultimate reality, to the meaning of life for her. But Sam, he thinks the meaning of life is found in a woman. And a soulmate. And so both Sue and Sam are pursuing the meaning of life. But they don't beg for grace. They do it on their own. They'd rather be anxious. How do you break the emotional quicksand of anxiety in your life? How do you become a person that actually begs for grace? I mean genuinely. You feel it. You want it. It's life. How do you become that kind of person? Well, look at verse 11. This is how Jesus says we are to begin to become that kind of person. If you then, who are evil. Well, let's make sure we read that again, because that's not the encouragement I was looking for on the Sermon on the Mount, right? If you then, who are evil. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is calling us evil. Period. Do you see that? I mean, he doesn't, there's no shyness, there's no hesitation. He just is as normal and real and as defining and as cosmic and epic as it can be. You are evil. So why is he doing that? Is he wanting to crush you? Is he scolding us? Is his whole goal about this whole thing is to condemn us? Well, we knew that, right? That's the oppressive side. That's the religious oppression. Okay, let's, let's make us all feel guilty. Let's condemn us. Let's be cruel. Let's psychologically unhinge everybody. What is Jesus doing? Do you know the British artist? Have you heard of this artist? His name is Damien Hirst. Do you know that he unveiled his masterpiece in 2007? It was a masterpiece worth $98 million. I just started after I read this enrolling Thai in art class. It starts next week. You didn't know that Thai, but that's coming. This particular artwork is coated with 8,601 diamonds, including a large pink diamond worth over $8 million. His explanation of his work is fascinating. He says, I hope, this work will, I hope this work gives people hope. That is, that it uplifts them, takes their breath away. Do you know what this $98 million piece of artwork that's coated with diamonds, do you know what it's coating? Do you know what it's covering? A human skull. Do you know what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount? He's removing all your diamonds so that you get down to the only thing left, the skull. We're evil. This is what we're like. This is who we are. And he's doing it because he loves you unfailingly so. 
Because when you get down to the skull, and the skull is all that's left in your life, you beg for grace. We beg for grace. See, when you see that you're angry, when you actually get down to the skull of your anger, you get down to the skull of your lust, or you get down to the skull of your retaliation, you get down to the skull of it, the bottom line of it, the evil of it, you have nothing left to do but to beg for grace. And so what we do is when we finally get there, we actually admit it. It's the most freeing thing in the world. He loves you so much, he wants you to live in reality, and he wants us to get down to the basic reality that this is the skull. This is what you're like. And when we admit it, we get grace. We beg for grace. We experience forgiveness. We can ask him to change us. We're at a whole new place of living. We actually begin to become the person of the Sermon on the Mount. When we see how fragile our identity is, you see what's going on in this passage? I mean, how fragile are we? We're so fragile that, that disrespect attacks the core of our very being, he says. Insults. We're so fragile that when, when people mistreat us, it's as if we diminish to the point of non-existence. We're so fragile that when enemies come at us, we turn around and we become monsters to protect ourselves. And when we get down to that reality that this is what we're doing, that we are this way, we're trying to preserve our identity at all costs, you get down to the skull of it, you beg for grace. We beg for grace. We admit that we, admit that we have a, dis, a destructed identity. And we beg for an intact one, a solid, secure one that, that actually can love and pray for enemies that actually doesn't need to create a cycle of payback. An identity that's so intact, it's not threatened, it's not diminished anymore. It's okay. When we see that our marriage has failed, our child has cut themselves off from the family, that our career's at a dead end, and the pain won't go away, when you get down to the skull of it, you beg for grace. When the skull is all that's left, you beg for grace. At the place of the skull is the place of grace. So how do we break the emotional quicksand of our anxieties? How do we begin to beg for grace? First, Jesus says, you got to get down to the skull of it. We got to see the skull. We got to get to the place of impossibility, because the place of impossibility is the place of grace. The second thing, notice what he says in verse 9 and 10. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks him for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now there are abusive parents that will give stones and serpents to their children. And if you are that parent, Jesus is calling you to get to the skull of it and beg for grace. And if you're the abused child... Jesus calls you to beg for grace because you have a perfect, perfect, unfailing, never-ending, loving Father. 
who only loves perfectly. Look at verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? I mean, what he's saying is incredible. He's going from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, look, even evil parents give good gifts to their children. How much so the perfect Father, the cosmic epic Father, the the breathtakingly beautiful Father, the Father that is full of generosity, the Father that is excessive in love and grace. See, the point here is not to start praying. The point here is to see what kind of God He is. He's excessive, extravagant. He's unrestrained in grace. And if we see him like that, if we come to know him like that, then you beg for grace. You will. You'll ask him for it. It's as natural as a... It's as natural... Those of you that are parents, how natural is it for your children to ask for things? Dad, 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 dad. Can I, can I, can I... I, 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 no, no, no! Stop! Right? And I'm the evil father. But you know what? God says, ask. Oh, you want that? Ask. Ask. Ask me again. Ask me for the millionth time. Ask. 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 Ask me. Did you notice Jesus did not say in verse 11... Do you notice what he did not say? See if you can find out what he did not say, then look up. Or if you have an electronic device, beam it up. Here's what he did not say. If you then, that's what he said. Here's what he did not say. If we then, who are evil. Oh, do you catch that? <laughs> that's beautiful. You know, he identifies himself many, many times with the sinner on the cross. He's going to become the evil. But here he wants you and I to be clear that he is not evil. That he's the sinless man. That he's the only human being in all of human history that actually lived the Sermon on the Mount life perfectly. And he did so for you and me. Because we don't. Luther said in the monastery that he was taught to pray, and he was taught to pray in many ways, but you know what? He said he was never taught to pray in which you ask God for stuff, or you beg for grace. You know why? He says because in the monastery, it was all about, am I praying enough? Are my prayers good enough? Do I pray on my knees enough? Do I pray sincerely enough? Passionately enough? Selflessly enough? Without sin? Without self-centeredness? Am I other-centered enough? Am I God-centered enough? Am I doing it right? How am I doing in my prayers? And you know what he said? He said he's, his whole prayer life changed when he got justification. 
His whole prayer life changed when he realized. Justification, you know what that means? It means Jesus lived the Sermon on the Mount life for you. He was the human being for you. And he said when he got that, when he got that Jesus prayed perfectly as a human being in his place and for him, you know what he said? I was free to pray. I could simply pray. I didn't have to think about how good my prayer was. I didn't have to think about saying the right words. I didn't have to think about how long they were. I didn't have to think. All I had to do was ask. Beg for grace. Anxiety is no match for justification. Anxiety is no match for Jesus living that impersonal impossible life for you. Anxiety doesn't stand a chance when it comes against someone that completed and fulfilled the impossible life. It has no chance. It breaks like a wave on the rock of his righteousness every single time. When you and I trust in Jesus being anger free for us, that he was not angry, but he was not angry because we are angry and he was not angry in order to give us an angry, free righteousness. Anxiety just hit a rock and, and got obliterated. It just got driven out. It just met perfect love. If John was here, he'd say perfect love drives out anxiety, drives out fear. You're free to admit that you're angry. And you're free to beg grace, beg for grace that God would work in you. He'd change you. And you know what happens? You actually begin to grow in these areas. When you get down to the skull, you beg for grace. And when you get there, you actually begin to see God change us in those areas. The problem is we're too busy tacking diamonds onto our skull. We just won't get there. And so it takes another relationship and another outburst and another situation to pull the diamonds off so you see the skull. So you see you're an angry person. Because you are an angry person. I'm an angry person. That's why Jesus is telling us and talking to us about anger. But you know what? He wasn't. <laughs> and he wasn't for you. When we trust in Jesus, loving jerks and enemies for us, right in the middle when you're being disrespected and right in the middle when you're being mistreated, when you trust and you, you're able to now beg for grace, anxiety's met its match. Jesus loved jerks and enemies and prayed for them. And he did so for you. And when that happens, you're now actually able to face the fact that you have a respect issue. You over-rely on yourself on respect. You look for respect to justify you. You look for respect to be the, what's going to give you righteousness. And so when it's threatened, you turn into a monster. When it's threatened, you withhold love. When it's threatened, you, you retaliate. That's what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, with anger, murder. Someone insults you and slaps you on one side of the tree cheek to turn the other. That's what all is going on there. And you're able when Jesus is the one that handled jerks and handled enemies perfectly for you, you're able to beg for grace.
And you're able to make some movement in a Jesus justification and away from a respect justification. You're able to move towards a solid, secure identity in Christ and away from a, a destructive, falling to pieces, non-intact identity in yourself. That's what's happening here. Okay, uh, last words are pretty big deal. Uh, John Adams was a president of the United States, and before he died, I read this the other day. You know what he said before he died? I mean, i just trying to picture the, the context of this and how this came about. It's awfully, I'm awfully curious. It's like I want to read a bio, because I really want to know why he said this. You know what he said right before he dies? The last words that came out of his mouth were, Thomas Jefferson survives. That's just crazy. I don't know what that is. What is that? Right? You know what the last words of Martin Luther were before he died? We are beggars. Beggars. Beg for grace.